Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord, thank you so much again for this opportunity to be able to come and open up our Bibles this morning to sit in your presence. Lord, I pray uh, that you would take this time uh, and that you would sow your seeds, as we've seen over and over again, into the fertile soil of our hearts. Lord, that we, I pray that we would be prepared already to receive it, that it might take root and grow and grow and grow. Lord, we thank you for this. Lord, I pray that you would just take these words of mine, uh, Lord, and use them in a mighty way this morning. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, we are going to be in chapter 15, and we're going to see that one of Jesus' biggest contentions is with the Pharisees who have not just added to the word, but added a whole new thing to follow in addition to the word. But we'll look at that. But last week, we looked at a couple of really big things. Chapter 14 and Matthew is a, just a tremendous chapter. We saw a guy, Herod, whose guilt over something that he had done caused him to fear to the point that his fear overwhelmed his faith and caused him to think and act illogically. And while it's easy for us to look at Herod and say, what a fool. Who among us has never acted foolishly because of guilt uh, or fear? We also were reminded of how differently we often think than our Lord. Where the disciples saw a burden to be sent away, the 5,000 who were hungry and plus, Jesus saw an opportunity to draw them in even closer. And I had to ask myself this week, how many opportunities have I missed seeing only burdens to be dealt with? Finally, we saw Jesus once again demonstrate his authority over the natural world by walking across the stormy sea. The very thing the disciples feared made subject to the soles of his feet. Peter's actions of stepping out of the boat and onto the water were both inspiring as he exercised great faith by trusting Jesus and stepping into the thing that he was most afraid of. And all too familiar as he became distracted by the stormy circumstances and began to sink. But as Peter calls out, Jesus, save me. Jesus reaches out and pulls him close, reminding us that often we are closer to him in a storm than when we are simply walking. Well, today we're going to be in chapter 15 And this is how it starts. The scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Ew. Okay. First of all, a couple things. And look at what it says that these were the scribes and the Pharisees from Jerusalem. See, Jesus isn't in Jerusalem. He's quite a distance away. 
And so these scribes and these Pharisees are coming from Jerusalem. These are like the main guys or actually rep, maybe representing the main guys from Jerusalem. And they've heard now all of these things that are going on, and they're going out to find Jesus. They're going to search for and find Jesus. But you understand, they're not going in the same sense that, let's say, the wise men went when they journeyed a great distance to find Jesus. They were going to find the one who would be king. That's not how the scribes and Pharisees came. They didn't come in the same sense that the multitudes came searching for Jesus. The multitudes came because they had heard that there was a man who could heal them. This is not how the Pharisees came. They came to find fault in Jesus. That was their goal. We're going to go and we're going to find fault in this man. But what they find is there are no faults. He's Jesus. There are no faults in Jesus to be found. So what they do is they turn their attention to the faults of his followers. Guess what? There are faults in the followers of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Y'all are followers of Jesus Christ. How many of you have a fault or two? That's right. Not everybody raised their hand. That's, your, that's a fault right there. <laughs> the church is an imperfect thing, right? Because, well, frankly, you're here. So that's the minute we walk in the door, the church becomes an imperfect thing. Um, and so you can find fault. I, I hear so often lately, I guess it just seems this way, is that when you ask somebody, hey, where do you go to church? They go, well, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't really go to church anymore. I was hurt by the church. I was hurt by the church. And what they're saying really was, I was hurt by some faulty follower of Jesus who goes to the church that I was going to. And sadly, what they've done is they, they, their feelings have been hurt or something even worse has happened by someone who is imperfect at the church they went to and they throw the whole thing out because of that. Do you know the saying, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater? I used to think that there was some real, like that came from an actual, like people used to like, they would take baths and the water would get dirty and the baby was the last one and they couldn't see the baby in the bathwater and they accidentally threw it out. It doesn't come from that. I looked it up. It's just an old German saying. It's just an old German saying that basically says, don't throw something away of value with something that you just want to get rid of. And that's what someone who says, I've been hurt by the church, so I don't really go anymore. I don't really go anymore means I don't go anymore. (laughs) Is saying that I threw out something unwanted, but with it, I threw out something of value as well. Like, if you look close enough at me, you're going to find faults. Do it right now. No, <laughs> no. No, see, I don't do everything right. I don't say everything in the right way. But I urge you, please don't throw out Jesus because of my faults or because of the faults of another follower of Jesus. If you look, you will find them. These guys, these, trans, these, these Pharisees, these um, scribes, they come and they're looking to find fault with Jesus and there is no fault to be found. And so they say, your disciples, actually what they say is, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of our elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. 
They phrase it as a question, but is it really a question? No, it's an accusation. Your disciples don't follow traditions. You've not taught them correctly. That's the closest they can get to some fault in Jesus is saying, you've not taught your disciples to follow the traditions of our elders. They don't wash their hands before they eat bread. Now, they're not saying that they're unsanitary. Okay, this is not what this is about. This was a ceremonial or ritual washing for purification because, you know, they were out there. They were among Gentiles. You know, they would do anything to avoid being, um, being, uh, hmm? Yes, thank you. Defiled by Gentiles. They even had lids on their baskets that they carried their food in so that the dust from the ground wouldn't go into their basket and get, not because it was dust, but because it might be Gentile dust. <laughs> and so they had these rituals that they were supposed to ritually wash their hands before they ate, and it says, before you eat bread, which is common bread or a meal. Okay, so what they would need to do was they didn't get the soap and the water out and scrub down. They actually would take a basin of water and pour water over. They'd have someone pour water over their hands. They had to hold it like this because if you held it like this, the water would drip down and then defiled water would drip down into your arm. So they had to hold their hands like this and pour water over their hands three times to ritualistically clean their hands to make them able then to eat common bread. And the disciples were not doing that. Now, ironically, it does say in the, the Mishnah, which, but the Mishnah is the written down oral traditions. Okay, so they had oral traditions that they would pass down, um, and then finally somebody wrote them down. And they, it was so important to them that actually there are some rabbis who taught that the Mishnah was more important than the Torah or the Word of God. The written down oral tra tra traditions of men had become more important, and this was one of those things, right? So, um, but it did say that you didn't have to wash your hands ritualistically before you ate fruit. In fact, if you ate fruit, if you washed your hands ceremoniously and then ate fruit, you were considered ostentatious. So if you're going to have a meal, you have to ritualistically wash your hands. But if you're just going to have an apple, don't wash your hands because then, you know, who do you think you are? But do you catch what they're saying? Your disciples transgress the traditions of our elders, the, the, the traditions that have been passed down from, from generation to generation. You have not taught your disciples to follow those things. And that's the only fault that they could come up with at this moment. But I say it like that to them. This was a big deal because again, the Mishnah was a big deal to them. The traditions were a big deal, more important in many cases than the word itself. And Jesus, knowing this, is going to point this out to them. So Jesus then answers their question with a question. So like Jesus, but so wise. Have you ever tried this? If you've not done this, make this a habit of yours now. When someone asks you a question, try to answer them back with a question and see what happens. Because you know what? A lot of times, you know, you think that, well, someone's going to say, oh, you're not answering my question. You're just asking another question. But they don't. They actually answer your question. It's a lot of fun. Give it a try. Jesus says, 
Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? He says, you're accusing them of transgressing tradition, but your traditions transgress God's law. Four, and he explains, for God commanded saying, honor your father and your mother and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Okay, so he quotes back to them the which commandment? Does anybody know? Honor your mother and father. Which one? Five. <laughs> Boy, we have work to do. Okay, that's where we're going. Everyone turn over to Exodus chapter 20. <laughs> Fifth commandment, honor your mother and your father, right? So this is a commandment of God given directly to Moses and the people. I don't know, maybe you don't remember, but remember in Exodus 20, God orally gave them all of the commandments first and then had Moses put them on stone tablets. So they heard with their ears all of these things. And so he says, um, but you say, whoever says to his father or mother, what profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Okay, so what has been happening and what Jesus is pointing out is that rather than to honor their mother and father, which is to mean um, the word honor there is value them, in this culture especially, the role of the children when their parents were older was to provide for and take care of their mother and their father. That's why families that had lots of children were considered to be very rich because they were like, oh, look at all the kids you have to take care of you in your old age. But what was happening was that the Pharisees were telling people that you can go to your mother and your father and say, look, the money that I have that I could use to take care of you, I pledge to God as a gift. So it's really not my money to use to help you. It's a gift to God. In fact, one of the other gospels uh, calls it, um, you claim Corbin. The word Corbin means gift of God. And so what they would say is, I'd like to help you out, Dad. Really, I would, but all this money that I have, I've pledged it to God. So it's not really mine, although he's letting me use it, but just not to take care of you. And this is their tradition that was trumping the word of God or the command of God that says you are to honor or take care of or value your mother and father when they need you to do it. And they were saying, whoopsie, I gave it to God, my bad, or my good, or whatever they called it. He says, then, then he need not honor. See, he's given himself an out, a loophole. Then he need not honor his father and mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition, saying you are transgressing the commandment of God through your tradition, whereas you're accusing my disciples of not following tradition. You're doing way worse than they are. Then he says, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He says, that's the very definition of a hypocrite. He calls them a hypocrite. He says, you draw near to me with your mouth and you honor me with your lips. You say things that sound like you love me. You say things that, to help, uh, to make people think that you are holy. 
but your hearts, your actions don't play it out, don't show it. And then he goes even farther and says, the traditions that you've created as men are now superseding the word of God. And by doing that, you make the word of God of no effect. They are not the only ones to do this, are they? It still happens. Do you know that there's an organization that's called the Mormons? Mormons will tell you they're Christians. But they do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Godhead in the Trinity, that he's God. He's some other thing, right? They also have the Book of Mormon, which they hold to a very high esteem, sometimes even over and above the word of God itself. And he would say, you are making your man-made traditions on a higher level than the word of God, which makes the word of God then of no effect. And maybe you don't know this either, but there's another organization in the world, and it's called the Catholic Church. And I'm not a Catholic Church basher on a whole, but this is something that happens. They have the catechism. How many of you are or were Catholic? Do you remember the catechism? Do you remember what that was? The Catholic traditions that were given to them by men that they hold somewhere here to the word of God. And he would say, your traditions are making the word of God or the command of God of no effect. Now, you don't have to be a a world religion to take tradition and put it over the word of God. Anytime that you take a tradition of your own, of your own family, of your own making, anytime you take anything of your own and place it of more importance over the word of God, you make the word of God of no effect in your life. Stop it. If you're doing that, stop it. If you find that there's a tradition that you hold that doesn't jive with what the word of God says, but you say, but this is how we've always done it. This is what my parents have taught me. This is what has been passed down. And it is, not, it is against what the word of God says or held higher than what the word of God says. Then you are making the words, the commands of God of no effect. If you didn't realize you were doing it and you really all of a sudden realize well, maybe I need to look at that. And you realize that you have been doing that. Here's the deal. Confess it and say, Lord, forgive me for putting this tradition of mine over the word of God. And he says, you're forgiven. Now don't do it anymore. So then he says, when he, in verse 10, when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand. What goes into the mouth, defi- what, not what goes into the mouth, defiles a man, but what comes out of his mouth, this defiles a man. Not what you eat, he says, but what you say. (laughs) Because what you say comes from where? The abundance of your heart. He's already said that. He's going to, we're going to talk about this a little bit more. He's saying, it's not what you eat that defiles you. Now, look at, the, look at what the disciples say. Then the disciples came and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? That's funny. The disciples come like, Jesus, you know, when you said that, that really made them mad. Why do you think it would make the Pharisees so upset? Just that one phrase. Like, why would that make them upset? Well, they had very strict dietary laws that they had been following and handing down. And now Jesus steps in in one verse here and says, if you are not defiled by what you eat. And the disciples are like, bring on the BLTs. And it ain't turkey bacon. That's uh, the real stuff. 
Now see, the disciples, I mean the Pharisees, they hear him say that, and they are offended by Jesus even more because they're like, he just said it's not, you're not defiled by what you eat, but you know, what about this, and what about this, and what about this, and what about this tradition, and, how, and all these other things. And the disciples said, they were offended by that. But Jesus is like, it's not what you eat, it's what comes out of you. That's what defiles you. He's going to expand on that in a little bit, so we'll save it. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. What's that sound like? Remember, uh, like uh, just a little while ago, we looked at the parable of the wheat and the tares, and the tares were being the weeds that were planted that looked like wheat. And, and uh, the, they were like, well, should we tear up the weeds? And Jesus said, no, leave it. Let them grow up alongside because the Lord will send his angels to do the harvesting and separating out of the wheat and the tares. And once again, he says here, let them alone. He says, let them alone. It's a very interesting phrase. It means um, release them. Not that they were holding them captive, but it was like release them from right here. Just let it go. Don't become consumed by the Pharisees and, and their offense. Let it go. Don't be consumed by it. Let them be, let them alone. Boy, we obsess, don't we sometimes? Do you ever obsess about something that's just like you just can't, I can't let this go. Until it's resolved, I, I'm going to think about it. It's going to keep me up at night. I'm probably going to dream about it. Only in my dream, it will look completely different. and It will be like a snake wearing a vest and, you know, whatever. And you just obsess and obsess and obsess. And he says, let it go. A snake wearing a vest, that'd be weird, right? I mean, they don't have arms to go through those holes. How would it stay on them? That's so weird. Where'd that come from? <laughs> he says of this of them they are blind leaders of the blind and if the blind leads the blind both fall into a ditch he says they don't know what they're doing they are leading people and they are blind but you know what i like about this he says both will fall into a ditch there seems to be some responsibility on the one who's being led as well as if the blind person is supposed to say to the one who's leading them, wait a minute, are you blind too? <laughs> Making sure that if someone is leading you, you know and trust that they are not blind, but they actually have their eyes open to the truth so they can lead you in a good direction, not into a ditch. Are you blind as well? Because <laughs> I'm not going to follow where you're going. Then Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. So Jesus says, are you still without understanding? Do you not understand? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? That's food. Will you see what he's saying to Peter? Um, let me explain to you. He says, whatever goes in, whatever you eat goes out. Got it? Everybody get that? Okay. It's eliminated. But those things which proceed from the mouth come from the heart. And they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not 
defile a man. And so Jesus takes this opportunity with his disciples. He said, look, it's not the food that you eat that's going to defile you. It's what comes out of your heart. And what is in your heart is this list of things. Uh, my wife and I were talking about this the other day, and it was kind of like, I kind of said, well, you know, are we lemons or are we oranges? In the sense that, you know, when you're squeezed, does what come out, is it sour or is it sweet? Are you a lemon or an orange? When you are squeezed, what comes out? Something sour, something sweet. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, it's not just when we're squeezed. That's very obvious time, but it's all the time. When you're alone, when you're in your car, in traffic, during season, what comes out? When you're at school or work or on the pickleball court. I know. What comes out? Sour or sweet. But here's the thing, right? Is your heart filled with evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, blasphemies? These are the things which defile a man. If you examine yourself and you see, when I'm squeezed, I'm sour. When I'm by myself, I'm sour. All these times that I um, am being asked what's inside is coming out, if that's sour, what do we do about that? Do we just make ourselves sweet? Does a lemon make himself an orange all of a sudden? No. We say, Lord, forgive me for the sourness of my heart. Forgive me, Lord. I confess that what I see in my heart is not good. Lord, please help me to be able to forgive me, Lord, and help me to be sweet when I'm squeezed, sweet when I'm alone. Let me be genuine. Genuine, you want that stamp that says genuine orange. But I am constantly reminded of this in my own life because, you know, I never know who will sit there when I'm standing here. So if I go in the store one day and I have a really bad attitude or I feel like I've had bad service and I'm rude and nasty to the server, guess what? That person could be sitting right there Sunday morning and looking at me and going, what a hypocrite. I don't want to act nice. I don't want to act kind. I want to be kind so that when I'm alone, people realize that, you know what? You know, I just share this with you real quick. We had um, our, our party yesterday for the volunteers um, at uh, our development. And so we had a group of us playing pickleball. And um, there was another group of guys over there and they were playing pickleball for like a really long time and they wouldn't get off the court. And so my wife says, <laughs> this is where I know I'm in trouble, she says, I'm going to go and ask them to get off so that we can use their court, which is the rule. The rule is if there are people waiting, when you finish your game, you go off. And so they finished their game and we started to come on. And one of them said, we're not done. And I was like, well, excuse me, but the, the rule is when you're done, you come off. And he, and he was like, whoa, do you live here? And I was like, oh man, we're, it's on. <laughs> and it, and, and. And I honestly, I was so close to this guy's face that we were like this. And I was like, well, do you live here? And, the, and I, look, I've got my entire group of volunteers I'm here. <laughs> Not to mention some potential churchgoers maybe standing here, his friends and all that. And he goes, well, I live here. And I said, well, I live here too. And he goes, well, I live on Terrazzo Lane. And I said, I live on Terrazzo Lane. And, 
And then he goes, I said, what number is your house? He goes, 1961. And I said, as I'm hearing myself say it, I started to laugh because I was like, we sound like children. (laughs) And I just started to laugh. And then he started to laugh. And then the whole thing kind of blew over, right? The whole time I'm in this man's face and we're like this. um, I was thinking, come on, come on. Because guess what? As I mentioned, not perfect. <laughs> come on, deeply. Come on. I mean, and so I, I de-escalated right away, and, I, and, and then they were like, oh, okay. And, they, and then so later on, they were at the pool, and I went over, and, um, and I, the four of them were in the pool, and they do live there, and I do want to play pickleball with them. They play every week. So um, I said, hey, by the way, thanks a lot for not punching me in the face. I was just trying to, you know, use some humor. And he goes, well, there were kids around. (laughs) Anyway, we're sitting there, and he says to me this. You're the preacher, aren't you? I was like, did I have my preacher shirt on? I said, yeah, how did you know that? Clearly not by my actions. So he says, my wife knows your wife. And I, in that moment, I was like, oh, man, am I glad that I held on to my witness as, much, as little as I did in that so that um, I was not a really bad representation of Jesus Christ. In the, and the guy next to him goes, really? You're a preacher? So um, then, you know, they're like, you want a beer? And I was like, oh, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm fine. Thank you. Um, but I was reminded of that in that very moment, like we, we are witness all the time. Now, just because I'm standing here and you're out there doesn't mean that it isn't exactly the same for you. If you go to this church and you're sitting here and you've been rude or mean or nasty to somebody out there and they're sitting there next Sunday, they're looking over and going, what kind of church is this? That person's a total hypocrite. Let's say you're a greeter at the door and you're like, hey, welcome. But yesterday we're like, you're a jerk and I'm never coming back to this restaurant. Man, sour, all right, sour. Boy, is that something to think about as you go out of here today. Lord, help me to be sweet, genuine fruit. It says in verse 21, then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. I just want to point out, The region of Tyre and Sidon is not a Jewish region. This is a Gentile region. He's going to go from Tyre and Sidon and then on to Decapolis, which is 10 Greek cities. Um, So he makes a point now of leaving the area that he spent most of his ministry time in to go to a Gentile region, Tyre and Sidon, okay? And so it says, and behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. It's very interesting that Matthew says that she was a Canaanite woman. All right? That was his way of saying she is so not Jewish. All right? And I'm not even sure at this time as there really were Canaanites anymore. It was just a way of him saying she is not Jew. She's not even a little Jew. Not like the Samaritans maybe who were, you know, like half. Jewish, who the Jews hated. She was a Canaanite woman, which means that she wasn't even a little Jewish. And she came to Jesus and she says, 
O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. She uses a messianic title for Jesus. O Lord, son of David. This non-Jewish Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and uses a very Jewish messianic title to address him. But in verse 23, look at his response. He answered her not a word. What does he do? He ignores her. That sounds kind of harsh. That doesn't sound like Jesus. All right, a lot of stuff here. First of all, he has gone into a Gentile region on purpose. He didn't accidentally stumble into Tyre and Sidon. He went there on purpose. Along comes a non-Jewish Canaanite woman of, of Syrophoenician, it says in Mark's gospel comes to him using a messianic term for him, and he ignores her completely. Now that seems harsh, but let's, let's look a little bit. And it says, and his disciples came and urged him saying, send her away for she cries out after us. Good old disciples. <laughs> Lord, she just won't shut up. Just, would you send her away? Once again, we see... The disciples seeing a burden that needs to just be like taken care of. Burden, Lord, send her away. Lord, all these people are hungry. Let's just send them away so they can get food. They see a burden. Jesus saw what? An opportunity to draw 5,000 plus people closer to him in relationship. Here we've got a non-Jewish woman using a messianic title coming to him and saying, Lord, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. He ignores her. She goes to the disciples and the disciples are like, Jesus, could you just send this pain in the neck away from us? Now, some people look at that and think that maybe they were saying, Lord, just do what she asks so that she'll go away because of the response that Jesus gives. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, whether he's talking to her or talking to the disciples, I don't know and it doesn't matter. I'm going to assume that both groups there are hearing what he's saying when Jesus says, I was not sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And then she came, and this is so important, look at this. Then she came and she worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. Here's the difference. The first time she comes to Jesus with a need, my daughter is severely demon-possessed, and she calls him what she has been told how to address this man, Jesus. He is the Messiah. To her, that means nothing. She's not Jewish. She's not waiting for a Messiah. She simply was told, when you go to him and ask him for something you need, address him as the Messiah. When Jesus hears that title coming from her, he recognizes this doesn't mean anything to her, but I have a plan for her. That's why I'm here. He doesn't answer that address. He doesn't answer that title coming from her because he knows this means nothing. She is only coming to me in a way that she was told that she was supposed to come to me to get what she wants. It doesn't work. And do you see what her next response is? Lord, help me. It goes from being, this is the title I was told to use to get what I want, to, Lord, help me. And she changes in that moment. She throws off what she was told to do, and then she addresses him coming from a place of sincerity in her heart. Lord, help me. I grew up in a 
very religious Christian home. And I was taught who Jesus was. And I was taught what to say, um, the words to say, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. I was told all of that. But that did not save me. What saved me was coming to a place in my life where I, like this woman, said, Lord, help me, where all of a sudden it was mine, my cry out to Jesus to save me, not using the words I was told to use to get what it was that I thought I wanted. There's a big change that happens in this woman's life. Lord, help me. Big difference. So now Jesus engages with this woman in a way that is very powerful. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, if you just are reading through this, you're like, still, it seems like he's just pushing her off. But you have to imagine now she's just come to him in all sincerity and just said, Lord, help me. And I, I picture in my mind that he turns to her and like he's engaging her now, drawing out her faith, which is what we're going to see. And he says, but it is not good for me to throw the children's bread to the little dogs. The term little dog is almost an endearment. Um, the, gen- the Jews would call Gentiles dogs. The, in Hebrew, there are no curse words. So when, when Jewish people want to swear, they have to swear in English. That's true. They swear in English because they don't have curse words in Hebrew. But at this time, when they wanted to um, speak of, uh, in a derogatory term, a Gentile, they would say a dog. There are four or five verses where the word dog is used in a very unflattering or derogatory way. This is not that word. Little dog is like little puppy. It speaks of the dog that maybe was like a household dog. Now, they didn't really have, have pets like we had pets, but they did have um, little dogs that would sit at underneath their tables. And, if, um, and, and what would happen is, you know, uh, when they would eat a meal, they didn't, they didn't do it like, like we do it. They didn't sit at tables with napkins and knives and forks. You know, they would sit at tables close to the ground and they would eat with their hands. And they would, uh, they would take bread and they would break off a piece of bread and they would dip it in stuff and then they would eat that. And then at the end of the meal, when your hands were like, you know, greasy and everything, they would take the last piece of bread that they had and they would wipe off their hands and their mouth and then they would throw that piece of bread to the little dogs that sat at their tables. And so um, what she's going to say is, now, now see, she catches on to what Jesus is saying when he's drunk. Imagine he's speaking now right to her, looking at her in the face when he says, but it's not good to take the little children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. She's answering him back in the same style, but what, he's, what she's saying is, I will take what the children have discarded. And Jesus says, it's me. He says, what they've discarded and what we just saw at the beginning of this chapter, the Pharisees and the scribes who are like, we don't want anything to do with you. In fact, we're going to try and find fault with you, Jesus, so that we can kill you. They have discarded. The Bible says the stone that the builders have rejected, that's Jesus. She's saying, Lord, I get what you're saying, but I will take what they've rejected. And Jesus says, you got it. You got it. It's me and I'll give you all of it. Because look what he says. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. 
the whole purpose of him coming here and every single thing that he said or didn't say to her was on purpose. I know this because he couldn't possibly have meant, oh, I didn't come to, I didn't come to help the Gentiles, only to the Jews. Is The very next thing we're going to look at is that he's going to feed 4,000 plus Gentiles. He had this conversation for this woman for this purpose. And here's the amazing thing. He didn't have to go into Gentile land, but he went to where she was. He went to where they are so that he could share the truth with them and that he could save them. Oh, man. Do you understand? He will go to where you are to save you. And when he finds you in whatever state you are in, you are savable. You don't have to clean yourself up and then go to church. He says, come and be cleaned by me, not me. Come and be cleaned. It says Jesus will come and he will meet you wherever you are. If you are in um, a lifestyle that is unpleasing to God, he will come and meet you there. If you are struggling in your life in an addiction um, that you can't seem to get out of, he will come and meet you there where you are. But he loves you so much that he won't leave you in that place. He will clean you up if you are willing. Guess what? Sometimes he uses a wire brush to do the cleaning, and it's not comfortable or nice, but the result is amazing. It says, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. You know what's really cool? I just realized she comes on behalf of her daughter, right? But her life is changed. She comes on behalf of somebody else, but her life is changed as a result of meeting Jesus in this meaningful way. Isn't that the way it is? Well, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up the mountain and sat down there. And then the multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. You have to understand that this is again, a Gentile region where he is. In Mark's gospel, it kind of says Tyre, Sidon, then in Decapolis. He's in a Gentile region. This is not a Jewish region, and yet so many are coming to him. So many Gentiles now are coming to hear from Jesus, and he heals them, it says. So many things, the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed. Well, what's that mean? Well, maimed, they, they are restored, he's going to say. The maimed are restored. So a lot of um, commentators believe that this means like mutilated or like even missing a limb. And Jesus was restoring the maimed. Can you imagine you're there and you see someone, oh, like I heard that guy was sick and that person came in on crutches, but that person had one leg when I came and now he's got two. Is that beyond Jesus to do that? <sighs> Please. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speak, the maimed made whole, the lame walk, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself, and he said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. Um, It's like nothing left to eat, by the way, because this one seems to indicate that they brought some food, but no one expected to stay for three days, and they didn't bring three days' worth of food. Now they have nothing to eat. And do not, I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Then the disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Really? 
Seems like this would seem very familiar. In fact, many people believe, wrongly I'm afraid, that these are two uh, the same incident, just two different accounts, that they kind of got the details. Then you're like, I don't know, they weren't sure if it was 5,000 or 4,000. Um, yeah, and Matthew, Matthew accidentally wrote it down two times in his gospel. Here's the thing, you know, they don't take place in the same uh, location, different number of people, uh, different, you know, one, five loaves, t- uh, two fish, this is seven loaves. Um, all of those, I suppose, someone could still look at and say, well, it's still, they just mixed up the details. It's still, I mean, how could this have happened two times? And how could the disciples have not remembered it from so, so a soon a time? Well, all of that to be said, if you just look over into chapter 16, verses 9 and 10, this is Jesus speaking. Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? Jesus refers to both events. Was Jesus just confused? I, you know, I've done so many miracles. I, you know, I've fed so many multitudes. I can't remember if it was one time or two times. Maybe he did it 12 times and then just wrote it down two times. I don't know, but I got two. Now, honestly, the disciples are looking at a crowd of 4,000 plus the women and the children. So, you know, I don't know, 8, 10, 6,000, a lot of people. And again, they're like, where are we going to get bread in the wilderness to feed this many people? And we would look at that and we would like, man, they're dumb. How could they not, how, I mean, how could they not remember? Even if it was, I mean, I don't know if it was the next day, but even if it was several days a month a year, that's something that you would remember. I mean, it was made such an impression on them the first time that all four of them have it recorded in their Gospels. I actually think that they did remember. What I think is they did not expect him to do such a great miracle for such a large group of Gentiles. Yes, the Jews, all right, because that's why he came. Yep, we get it. He would feed that many Jews, but he's never going to do that same kind of divine miracle for a group of Gentiles. No, no. I think they think that they've got him figured out. Jesus would do something like this for the Jews, but never for the Gentiles. We've got Jesus figured out their thinking. So that doesn't even occur to them that he would do the same glorious miracle. I think that we still are trying to figure Jesus out. So often we think that we've got him figured out. And it's not because, you know, we're trying to figure him out because we want to know him more. But oftentimes it's because I think we think we can have some kind of control over the situation or even Jesus himself because we've got him figured out. We're like, all right, I got him. Here's my Jesus box. He goes in. I've got Jesus figured out. If I pray this way, this is how he answers. If I say these things, he works in this way. I've got Jesus figured out. In Mark's gospel, at this same time, Jesus heals a deaf mute guy by putting his fingers in his ear and spitting on his tongue. Anybody see that one coming? I don't see, you know, I don't see a lot of churches saying, come on up here, come up here. I don't see that going on a lot in churches. I do see a lot of coats being whipped around. I don't see that in the Bible anywhere, actually. I think they think they had him figured out. I think sometimes we think that we can figure him out. And I think this is what Jesus says. Stop trying to work me and just worship me. Oh, man. Let's get a, go put that on a pillow. Courtney, just stitch that into a pillow. 
So, so Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a little fish. You know what? I wonder if that's left over from the last time. They had 12 baskets of leftovers. I wonder if that's left over from the 5,000. That would be interesting. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitude. And so they all ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets full of fragments and were, and, and that were left. Now those who were eight were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude, got into a boat, and came to the region of Magdala. You know what one of the big differences that I see here between the 5,000 and now the 4,000 is in the, there's no clamoring to make him their king, right? They weren't expecting or waiting for a Messiah. These were Gentiles. They weren't expecting a deliverer to come for them, right? I was not looking for a savior when I got saved, he found me. I did not find him. You know, I had been told all the right things to say. I had been taught all about Jesus when I was little, but then I spent years not looking for Jesus, not even caring. But he found me. He came to where I was, and he loved me, and he cleaned me up, and he fed me. And if he's not done that for you also, he wants to. He's knocking on your door. He's found you. He's saying, you don't have to be cleaned up. You don't have to be addiction-free. You don't have to have a perfect life. By the way, you never will on this side of heaven. But I want you, he says. I love you. Let me feed you to full. You simply need to believe in me. And confess that you believe in me, and you will be saved. That's what the word says. It's so simple. It's so simple. If you haven't done that, please, please. I, I, can't, I can't make you believe. I can't make you believe. I can simply tell you what the word says. I can tell you that Jesus loves you so much that he let himself be killed for you. I can give you evidence that that really happened, but you have to believe it. And if you do, he says, you're saved, you're forgiven, you're cleansed, you're mine. If you haven't done that, would you please, please prayerfully consider it? And if you don't know what it means and you're just completely confused about what I'm talking about, would you please come and find me and say, what's all this saved stuff that you're saying? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just am so thankful for your word. What a gift that it would be preserved for so long for us to be able to read through. Lord, I thank you so much that you came to where I was to save me. Lord, on purpose. I thank you for the reminders that you give us of that very thing as we read through your word. Lord, I'm encouraged <clears throat> of these things because it reminds me of how important it is to read through your word and to, to remember the things that you did as examples for what you will do. Thank you for your promise of eternal life with you in heaven, Lord. Lord, I earnestly pray for those here who don't 
know you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, who are still trying to make it on their own. I know they're tired, Lord. I know they're burdened. Lord, you say in your word, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lord, I pray that they would seek that rest in you, Jesus. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, and I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.